Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. I've got a super exciting episode in store for you today. We've got John Ivanko from Form Toro with us today. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks. For- My pleasure, mate. It look it's funny because we've had lots of awesome banter on LinkedIn. I think I actually found out about you and met you through Juliana Jackson. I think, if I remember rightly, she told me about this guy that knows his shit when it comes to, <laughs> to e-commerce, and she pointed me in your direction. And I think that was, if I remember rightly, it was probably about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. We connected on LinkedIn. And we've had lots of good conversations. We have had lots of good banter. You've been putting out some absolute banger posts recently. You're on fire. You've obviously built this new platform, FormToro. And we'll get into that in a little bit. You've got some really, you've got a stack of experience. You went from the, the medical space. If we go all the way back to 2003, you're from San Francisco. You're based in the Bay Area. Hospital Unit Service Coordinator 3. And then you went from that to into business consultancy, solutions consultancy, tech, e-com, customer experience. And I also think you're a quality, you, if I understand correctly, I think you and your wife are also qualified lawyers. Yeah, that's, we got an interesting background going on. I think I've touched a lot of different, a lot of different, different career paths, healthcare for a bit, which was a blast. And it could expose me to what that was all about. And my, my mom's a nurse, so She's been in healthcare her entire career until she retired. And then, yeah, and then ended up in law school during the recession back in like 2009 and 2011, and then came out and, well, San Francisco and startup seemed like a good place to get back to. That, that's a funny transition, I, but I guess, I guess the, the whole thing about legal skills is it teaches you to do research, teaches you to be very methodical especially in a litigious state like California, but you really have to know, I guess, all of the commercial and legal ramifications of anything you're doing in business. And so it feels like that would be a natural place to deploy your skills. For, for me, it was like, do you go get an MBA or do you go to law school and get a better sense of what everyone's talking about? Because there's legal that goes into every single agreement that happens between a business. And that's usually where things get stalled or people get taken advantage of, to be completely honest. And I figured it would be better off to have a little bit of a background in that. But I am spoiled. I have a wife that is in commercial transactions, working in tech. So she takes the lead on all that. And I can take a step back and just have somewhat intelligible conversations with her about the different elements. Love it. And you're an owner of Boone Road and Form Toro and Boone Road and Form Toro. Basically, as, as I understand it, you offer a combination of platform and services. So we can almost think of you as an agency, but not really. You offer CX and UX services, and you offer a platform to create better experiences for customers that also in the same breath collects really solid and really high quality zero and first party customer data to inform that customer journey, and then to also reuse that data in a way that Instead of weaponizing that data from a marketing perspective, it's more how can we leverage this data to make sure that we are A, servicing our customers at the highest level possible, but also are are we using this data in a really meaningful way to help do things like 
contain CAC going after the right cohorts of new customers? Because we'll talk about this a little bit more as well, based on your experience. Most customers don't even come back to most websites for even a second purchase, let alone a third, a fourth, and a fifth. So how can we leverage this data to better understand our customers? So we're creating an awesome experience, hopefully going after cohorts that aren't going to cost us the earth and are high quality cohorts. And instead of having this total blind reliance on the likes of Facebook and Google for all of our audience creation, how can we send them some cohorts that we can then create lookalike off of that are actually meaningful to us as a brand? So I know that's a lot to unpack, but <laughs> you know, services and a platform agency rolled into one. We didn't start out that way. So Boone Road was a holding company because we didn't have a name for our company for the first year while we were building it in the background and talking to a bunch of agencies under NDA and uh, other companies and figuring out where we could fit into the landscape. We had grand ambitions of being SaaS. And that's completely candid. We we thought, oh, everyone's going to get this. Multi-step pop-ups, live data collection. That sounds like everything you could possibly dream of as a marketer because you get so much more information and you don't have to guess. And then we found out after talking to a bunch of agencies that people are like, oh, okay. And they didn't quite get it. It was an evolution and a pivot internally for us to say, I think that the market isn't fully aware of how to handle data and how to leverage data and how to play with data. And as a result, that was like the natural return to consulting roots, so to speak, going back to what I was doing previously and saying, okay, how, how do we build a tool that helps me do my job better? And how do I put myself in there, make my life a little bit easier, but be able to shepherd people through understanding how to leverage data and how to build strategies around it. That is so key. And I tell you, it's interesting that you have come full circle on that services versus technology piece, because I think all of us that kind of are technically inclined, and I'd like to think you're technically inclined, I'm very technically inclined. And we oftentimes think that technology, and in our industry, I see it every day, where merchants think that technology will solve all of their problems. And if they just implement this one piece of tech that is the silver bullet, then they'll never actually have to do any legwork. They'll never actually have to do any proper analytics work. They'll never have to speak to customers. They'll never have to like, they're looking for this point solution that allows them to run a business hands off. And in my experience, it, it, that couldn't be further from the truth. Tech is an enabler, at least it can be, but without the right strategy and the capability behind that strategy, it's all for naught at the end of the day. Yeah, it's weird. And I think e-commerce is specifically bad as a, as a sector in the industry, just because there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of buzzwords and a lot of KPIs that are meaningless. And we do heavily rely on products that are marketed in order to own kind of the narrative around it. A lot of the bigger brands do a really good job of branding, but sometimes there's that 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 part that's missing. And one of the easiest examples of that is attribution. By default, attribution is 30 days for every single platform. So everyone's trying to claim some degree of, yeah, I did this. And that's not, it's not really part of the thing. It's one tiny piece of a customer journey. And it's weird though, because that's the way that technology is set up. It either has to save you time or make you money or preferably both. Now, how did you come up with the vision for Form Toro? Now, I know you said, look, we, we wanted to effectively build a SaaS platform that was turnkey, hands-off, and people could just subscribe to it or agencies could white label it and you're off to the races and you're going to be the next dot-com billionaire. So that, that's the dream of everybody that builds a SaaS platform is it's a hands-off piece of technology. But when we look out to the market and when I, and I've never used FormToro before, so I'm just making some assumptions here, Yeah. but it feels like there are some other platforms in the market that attempt to be or do 
some of the things that you're doing with Form Toro, and I'm thinking of platforms like Jebit and other quiz commerce platforms that really streamline and operationalize the collection of, or the creation first of forms and preferences forms and interest forms and quizzes and interactive interactive experiences that demonstrate a benefit to the customer for giving up their precious data. And I think we're now getting to a place where I personally don't think the vast majority of consumers give a shit about privacy. I think there's been a lot of noise about <laughs> privacy in the industry. And I think in general, it's actually in Apple and Google and Facebook and big tech. It's in their best interest to, to push this narrative of privacy because at the end of the day, all that does is re-entrench re their position as the leaders of first-party data in the industry with their single sign-on technologies and their SaaS platforms, et cetera. They've got, they've got first-party data coming out their ears. And so what do they care if, if everybody clamps down on privacy? It's actually in their best interest to, to force every brand in the marketplace to be completely dependent on them and the cohort of first-party data that they have in, in, in spades. And so I, I think it's actually a bit of a red herring. I, look, everybody praises Apple and iOS for all their privacy moves. Well, look, if you were going to develop an ad network based on your treasure trove of first-party data, what's the first thing you'd do? You'd clamp down on privacy, wouldn't you? So I see it as a red herring. Now, look, maybe I'm just being cynical, but I don't think that that Google or Facebook or Apple, I don't think that any of these mega brands do anything out of the goodness of their heart. It's always a strategic play. And so we've got some technologies out there that help us gather zero and first-party data. Maybe we'd even call them competitors to form Toro. But A, what's your kind of opinion on the benevolence of these large corporates to push privacy? And then secondarily, why did you feel the need to go and build your own platform versus perhaps using something that's already in the market? Yeah, to the, the big baddies in the room, we went through this and we've been following this since GDPR and everything else. The wife's also a privacy attorney and has been following that and tracking that. So we've been like around what's going on and how it's changing for a while. I was in smart home and when I was working for LifeX and I was in smart home, we had a lot of data, a lot of personal data about usage of products within a home. So we started to see what was happening in that specific industry. And I think that was like one of the catalysts uh, behind Apple's move to privacy is they were launching HomeKit enabled stuff in homes. And that became a real sticking point to put a microphone in your home, like an Alexa or, or Google. And a lot of people do draw the line at that. There's some, there's a lot of people that have them and they were giving away for basically cost in order to collect more data and mine everything. I think there is a turning point though, where convenience and privacy maybe can't coexist anymore. And I don't know what that looks like. The interesting play about Apple's move with iOS changes and stuff like that, specifically around tracking, the first thing that things like Shopify did was partner with Google and Facebook, which is dangerous because Google and Facebook make up the majority of the ad spend for a lot of these small brands. And at a certain point, they were bringing in a bunch of brands for free, basically, on the marketplace and allowing them to do stuff. But eventually, they're going to take a cut. Now you have AI and ML, and I do use those terms because Google and Facebook actually have the capabilities to make it happen. They have an algorithm that's going to decide who makes them more money. So they can decide if they want to show you an ad or they can decide if they want to direct you to their own shop. And they're making those decisions faster than any human can do. And Facebook has the same thing. It knows what your ad spend is. It knows what your return on in ad spend is. It knows all your numbers. So it can choose where it wants to send you and what kind of ads it wants to send you and what it wants to put in front of people who have the higher likelihood of checking out on their platform and makes them more money or sending the traffic to your own website. It's a rigged game if you think about it. That's what I'm really scared of. 
I don't think there's a way around it. I think that when you allow machines to make decisions based on what's good for the company and good for the company means revenue at all different points, you're going to see costs just keep going up and you're going to see uh, lower and lower res- results that benefit the company itself. Couldn't agree more. And how did you, obviously you saw this unfolding, some would call it a dystopian nightmare of, of <laughs> privacy or lack thereof with these massive companies just owning kind of more data and understanding more about us than we do about ourselves. And you said, hey, we need to level the playing field here. And we see that iOS is not going to go back on on its privacy journey. They're going to continue locking things down. They're going to continue hoarding data inside Apple. They're going to continue to basically hold app vendors feet to the fire. They're going to continue to develop out their capability to do targeting. They're going to they're going to basically monetize. They that Apple has been pretty reticent to monetize their customer base in any other way other than hardware and software that is wholly their own and through music, et cetera, and through other content plays. But it feels very much like Apple is readying itself for a future where it's got to be in the arms race, in the ad tech and ad spend space up against the likes of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Those are the big three now from a digital ad spend perspective. And it feels Apple is arming itself to the teeth to compete with these guys in all sorts of new ways. And the best thing they did, Apple Pay. Hands down, the best thing that they did. Whenever I'm online on a store, I check out via Apple Pay. I use Apple Pay to pay for all my groceries. I like that it like hides my credit card number via all the payments. They have so much data relevant to payments. And it's funny because I was in mobile payments back in 2011, and it was early on. And then I went to Australia, and I realized I could use Apple Pay everywhere. And I never had to pull out a cart. And then... Wow that was like the turning point for me. And this was back 2015. And this was, I was talking to a couple people that were in finance and they were talking about the mobile payment market and how all the telecoms had already paired up with people in Asia. And that's how they were making all their payments happen. And they don't use cards anymore. Apple knows that it's dominant. It's slow to roll stuff out for its wallet app, but when it rolls stuff out for its wallet app, it works. And now if you think about it, and this is something that I didn't even realize till the other day. There, there's. I used to think there was only two points of intention on a website where someone would actually have to type something in. And one was the checkout where you'd have to type in your name, address, email, fill out all that stuff. The other one was signing up for a discount code, subscribing to a newsletter with an email. Apple has taken away the checkout. It's no longer a point of intention where you actually have to type something in. You just tap a button and double click and you're good to go. There's only one point of intention that a user takes on a website now where they actually have to type something in. Yes, that's a very interesting point. I guess the argument could be made that site search is still where somebody might want to type something into a website to find what they're looking for. Related, right? I'm sorry? That's more marketplace related. Yeah, I guess it's the kickoff of the customer journey for a lot of customers. So they'll arrive at a website and unless they arrived on the perfect landing page, the perfect PDP, where that's exactly what they wanted and they only want to check out with that one item, then I guess, yeah, there there is almost no additional friction there. If you use Apple Pay or any one of the other sort of single click checkout experiences, whether that be Shopify payments or Google Pay or any of the others, there, there is almost zero friction between the point of, landing on a product that you like, adding it to your cart and checking out, it's virtually friction-free apart from obviously if you want to search for other items to shop in the same shopping session. Yeah. 
Uh, so you you asked like how did this idea come to be and how did we figure out that this is what we want to focus on it's actually the story starts actually a long time ago back when i was selling SaaS, we had so many people that were coming in and it was always a debate how long do you want your sign up form to be on SaaS? and i realized i want enough information but i really just want to direct people to like a demo video that they can watch and then i want to follow up with them when they've had time to do that so one of my earliest things for messing with process is I built a, a video library for a, a SaaS program. There's like 240 videos in there. And rather than scheduling demos with people, which didn't seem like a good spending of my time, we sent them out like the videos and we let them watch it at their own pace. And then we followed up with a call and then scheduled follow-ups on specific things. That was my first intro to how important the customer journey was in all this and how as businesses, we created so many different roles and processes that mattered for us but didn't matter for the customer and that was like a flashpoint of frustration that happened of realizing that maybe we should just ask some questions and guide people towards the solutions that they're looking for at their own pace and i remember i always used to ask people on the phone whenever i was talking to them in sales how do you learn do you learn via video do you learn via audio do you want to read some case studies do you need to touch something feel something everyone learns a different way and yet Somehow, in the infinite wisdom of the internet, we've decided that everyone needs to check out the same way, go on the same customer journey and figure it out without any help. So I kind of nurture them through that. Fast forward to the pandemic and after working with a couple clients and it was the same thing. Everyone was doing the same thing. They, they put people on a landing page. They had them sign up with an email. They sent out a survey via the email and then they hoped to get data from there. And then we realized where the real drop-offs were. And the real drop-off was you get a good sign-up rate, but that open email rate dropped, and then the click-through dropped, then the completion of the survey dropped. And to be completely honest, I wasn't aware of any competitors in the market when we started working on this, which was more than a couple of years ago. It just wasn't very common for anyone to be playing in this specific part of the game. And then when we got deeper into it and, and started really like building, we realized that people were building not in the right way, where people were trying to solve a problem that really wasn't a problem. And you can see the ebbs of it, of like when personalization became such a big thing that everyone was focusing on, but no one knew why. There was all these quotes that it was going to help people out and they were going to make more sales and everything else. And I look at stores like Nordstrom who have all innovation groups and I order pretty much the same stuff from them in one size and they never send me an email related to that product in that size when it's available. It, it, we were not really good at that at all. I think yeah. it's cute that a lot of stores want to get inside that game and make that happen. But if you can't leverage data to tell bigger trends and apply that to some serious BI in terms of making decisions around resource allocation, there's no point in collecting it. And I guess that feels like one of the reasons why you guys bundle this concept of, hey, we've got this really engaging and really interactive experience technology that we've built, but we realize that just handing this off to marketers to weaponize this data almost against their customers isn't the right way to go or isn't enough. And so well, we, we're not- We watched not, it. We watched yeah. some of our competitors in this space and I won't name names here, but if you watched like how they went about stuff, they started hiring a lot of people and starting to take over all the design and how to go find agencies to partner with in order to uh, do the creation of these things. That's a problem. Like it, it, we talked to enough customers to realize that people don't actually understand what kind of questions to ask and why. And if you've ever had to take a survey from a company, sometimes they ask you questions that have no bearing on your customer journey at all. It's all related to demographic info that they'd like to, to have for whatever reason. That's the gap. 
and I don't, there wasn't a good way to solve it. And there's not enough light writing on LinkedIn that I can do in order to persuade people to think about it differently. And so by offering both services and tech together, then you put yourself in a position where it's like, hey, we can not only facilitate the creation of these engagement experiences and what that looks like and what that feels like, how it's branded, how it's delivered, where it's delivered in the customer journey, et cetera. But we can also provide strategic advice and consultancy on what to do with that data once we've gathered it, as well as how can we make this immediately as well as in the long term beneficial to the customer that chooses to give us the data in the first place. 100%. It's all about the customer. And I think I love to play with what's possible. And building products is something I've really enjoyed doing for a number of years. But the idea that we all do stuff the same way is baffling to me. We broke out multi-use coupon codes that were unique and created on the fly. And we thought that was really cool because every time I want to sign up for something, I usually want to test out one thing on a brand. And then if I like it, I have a good experience. I want to come back, but I don't want to be gated back by another coupon code or waiting for an email where it's bias built into it. You're like, just provide the coupon and use it twice. It's amazing what happens when you remove that bias and you can understand the behavior of the customer when you're not chasing them with discounts and offers all the time. And I get, the other thing about that is that when we see brands do this and it's become almost like pandemic pandemic of its own in our industry is this concept of discounting, you know, discounting and, and promotions and offers and coupon codes and everything else. First of all, to acquire the customer. Second of all, to acquire the customer again, effectively, even if they're already a customer of yours, because yeah. you're trying to get them to come and shop with you again. And so it's all about who has the bigger, better, badder second incentive to get them back a second time, let alone almost zero hope of getting them back a third or a fourth or a fifth time. So it feels like a lot of these brands have historically looked at acquisition as an every time thing, meaning we're competing in the marketplace every single time for this customer, even if they've bought with us one time before, we know that there's virtually zero brand loyalty. So the second time they're gonna go out and look for a product, even if we carry that product, or even if we sell that product, they're gonna go to Google, they're gonna go to their favorite shopping comparison website, they're gonna go to Amazon, they're gonna, because price discovery and product discovery is virtually instantaneous today. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I think that's actually created almost consumer ADD to the point where they don't even remember, even if they've shopped with a brand a month ago, they may not even remember that they shopped with that brand because they didn't find that brand through brand loyalty. They found that brand through Google search or shopping comparison website in the first. If you ever walk into uh, like a Best Buy store or whatever else, and the amount of people that have their phones out that are looking up stuff on Amazon is funny to watch. This is someone in a retail store that could make a purchase right there and they're still comparison shopping within a store. I think someone geofenced, I think I heard about this, someone like geofenced it to automatically put, put some degree of a notification on it or didn't allow people to use the in-store Wi-Fi to find a competitor store. I'm pretty wow, sure someone wow. did so, that. Uh, so they couldn't showroom it. Yeah, so like you could go into the store and if you sign on to their Wi-Fi or whatever for your, for the free Wi-Fi, they would geofence. Like it might have been, I don't remember who it was. Good example would be like if Best Buy did it and said, oh, you can't search Amazon when you're in our store on our Wi-Fi. Wow. Wow. That is nasty. I guess you got I guess if you're Best Buy, you're thinking, man, we got to do everything we can to compete against Amazon. But I guess if I was in their shoes, I'd be thinking, 
what is so bad about our in-store experience or, you know, or our customer experience full stop that we can't win these customers when they're on site? I just think it's one of those things where we default to those behaviors. We really default to those behaviors. And when you're in physical retail, you just don't have access to as many things. So sometimes things are out of stock. Sometimes things are low. Sometimes they're not in a color that you want, et cetera. So your default is where else is this sold? And can I go find that? And I remember this and here's, this is an example. I wish I was able to do this. I didn't get to do this, but we were sold on Amazon and through Amazon and we had map pricing on all of our stuff. And the question would come up in our weekly marketing meeting or getting crushed by Amazon. Why we got to be losing sales to Amazon. How do we fix this? And I was like, it's really easy. You add a modal button that says buy on Amazon. And then when someone clicks it, it pops up and says, Hey, we have map pricing, but we have twice the amount of a return policy here. And we'll give you 10% off. If you'd still like to go to Amazon, here's the link. That's literally all any store would need to do. And then justify that supporting a brand directly actually helps them to keep providing excellent service that and build more products for, for the audience. Yet I've never seen one website that does that. Wow. But what's funny that you should say that because that kind of almost brutal honesty, not so much brand to customer, but brand to itself is something you don't see very much of. It's almost like they want to bury their head in the sand whilst also knowing that Amazon is the 800 pound gorilla, but they almost don't want to admit it to themselves, but that, but that yet, yet that's all they talk about but yet they don't do anything strategic about it. As you say, they don't effectively say, well, look, let's hijack behavior that a customer's already going to take anyway. Why don't mm -hmm. we effectively help them with that behavior? And it's not just out of the goodness of our heart. It's genuinely about, I guess, interrupting the patterns. Like you, you said, this is a pattern, right? This is a behavioral yeah. pattern that people do. How can we interrupt the pattern? Even if it's just for a split second, to actually get a really important message to that customer as they execute on that pattern. That's the key, right? Yeah. I, it's so funny because we've, I, I love people that call themselves experts in a space. I'm, I'm constantly learning. I, I've seen so many things I've wanted to do and try on, on sites and I don't understand. I haven't really been blown away by anyone breaking the mold and trying something different. And in legacy industries like e-commerce, that hasn't really changed since like the late 90s, in all honesty. Like web design, every e-commerce site looks the exact same. We don't browse that way anymore. The experiences that we have require you hitting a back button on every single page. Why is that the behavior? Why are there breadcrumbs on every single e-com page? That seems like it's very inefficient for how we currently browse stuff. You don't have to hit a back page really on, on Netflix. You just scroll to the right, to the left, and gives you the information you need and you can go from there. I just haven't seen the amount of innovation that I think e-commerce needs. And yet we get hyped about some basic technologies. Yay, we can collect a phone number after an email. I've got like days on why that's not a good idea. Like I, I think e-commerce is low hanging fruit of people that don't like thinking through things and don't want to challenge the status quo. And when you first start engaging with a customer, before you even start talking about the Form Toro technology and how that allows them to engage with their customers and collect more data and store it and use it, et cetera, what is the, I guess, when you, the very first time you start meeting with a new client, what are some of the first steps that you do? Are you digging into their GA data? Are you digging into what makes them unique as a brand that you now need to better communicate to the market? Are you looking at their key competitors? What is it that you kick off with 
do you start to understand their level of empathy for customer first and, and meet them where they are? Or is it, hey, these this is a playbook. Here's a playbook of 10 things. If you guys aren't doing this now, here's a playbook of 10 things we need to execute on immediately. So what does your engagement model look like? <laughs> you want to know how crazy this is? I don't even look at Google Analytics at all. I just don't care. The reason why I don't care is Google Analytics is really good at telling you what you're looking for. It's not good at telling you about behaviors that you'd be blind to. Well, or they want you to be blind to. Let, let, let's be cynical here. And, I, and I've noticed, uh, and sorry to cut you off, and I'll let you continue No, no, a you're good. I, I've noticed that Google Analytics, particularly with GA4, and with the latest mm -hmm. iterations of GTM, they become effectively developer-only platforms. If we look at data layers, if we look at the complexity of implementation of GTM, if we look at the lack of e-commerce tracking and transparency of GA4 versus universal analytics, which is being deprecated, to mm -hmm. me, it feels very, to me, it, in the early days, Google made analytics, it was a democratization effort to make analytics available to everyone. But now it feels like they're going the other direction and they're making it so technical that it's almost useless to the common. If they want to make it useful, oh, we just had this conversation the other day. The fact that there's a Facebook click ID and there's Google click ID and they don't talk to each other and the best you can do is UTMs and the UTMs work okay most of the time if they're supposed to work that way, right? We have no consistency across the entire ecosystem and that's done on purpose and mm -hmm. that's that's i think that's part of it uh, i don't even show the our platform i don't talk about the data collection side on on most of my calls most of my calls are, are just chatting with the person understanding where they're at in their business and kind of what their immediate goals are and understanding what resources they have allocated towards making a strategy shift because for when we work with people you need to be committed to making a strategy shift and we don't need to see that much. We'll go to the website and see what pop-ups they have if they're doing quizzes and stuff like that. And, and we'll just ask how they're using that data. And most of the time, they might be segmenting emails and that's about it. But most people that have been doing emails long enough know that if you just have a good subject line that's related to why the person signed up, they're going to open it. That's 90% of the battle. The click-through is all about timing or curiosity, really one of those two things. And I think a lot of people miss that. Like e-com and conversion rates and everything else is about right time, right place in front of the right person. Well, the messaging doesn't matter as much as I think a lot of people like to think that it does. Yeah, the timing is really important. I think about myself and I think about it's been dumb luck. I would say 95% plus of the time when I receive an e-commerce email from, from a newsletter mailing list of an e-commerce site, <laughs> I would say that greater than 95% of the time, if I click on something in that email and actually make a purchase from that email, it is because they just had dumb luck around their timing of sending the right item at the right time that I was looking for already, or, or the timing was just perfect. So for example, we, so my wife and I, we got married in a lockdown wedding in November last year, but we're having our reception this year. Now that we're out of lockdown, we can have more than 10 people at our wedding yeah. and we're having that at the end of the month. One of the, the fashion brands that, that I'm subscribed to, they sent out an email. It was, it was about a month. It was actually about two months ago. And it just so happened that I was looking for some clothes for my groomsmen. And it just so happened that it, it was, and, and I, obviously they didn't know that I was going to be having this reception. They had, they had no idea. So it wasn't like they were targeting me based on the timing of the date of my reception. They had no idea. And it was just dumb luck that they sent something that was totally relevant to what I was looking for in that moment for my <laughs> groomsmen. And yeah. I've, I've had this experience on many occasions 
where it's just dumb luck that there's no possible way that e-commerce brand could have known, would have known, should have known something that was happening in my life that was relevant to something that they sent me. That wasn't but I bet you they have a list of different things that you did, how many pages you watched, how many emails you opened, how many other ads that you saw or whatever they've ascribed to being, this is what made this person convert. Jason converted because of this. Yeah. And it, and it, well, it would be wrong. It would just simply be wrong. And you, they would be making massive assumptions because they've probably spent, you know, half a million dollars on a CDP and they've spent whatever they've spent on marketing automation and they've spent whatever on CRM. And you know, guess what I'm going to do today? I'm going to set up a post-purchase survey and I'm going to ask, why'd you purchase today? That's going to be like the open-end question. I'm just going to leave on every checkout. Yeah. That's, that's going to be the question. Why did you decide to purchase today? Why was today the day that you decided to make your upgrade? Yeah, because the reason that they think it is most often not going to be the case. And well, we don't ask that question. We ask, where did you hear about us? Oh yeah, it must have been our great ads, whatever. We're so business company centered instead of just asking customers more questions. I used to block out every Thursday and Friday and take all the angry customer support questions, which I thought was a blast <laughs> because I talked to people and they would be so huffy puffy. And I'd explain to them, I was like, look, I'm here to just answer your questions and learn a little bit more about you and what's not going right in your experience. And I'm going to try to walk you through as best I can. But sometimes things don't work out and we can be fun on a Friday. Like it's a Friday. Like it was so funny because you watch people change when they realize that like it was a Friday and you were taking time to talk to them and you talked to them for as long as you wanted, but you don't understand about people. But most marketers hate talking to customers. Absolutely refuse to do it. They don't like it at all. They would prefer to just send out a survey and get some Blake answers about some things that people do and then make assumptions based on that. And they only had 4% of the people respond to the survey. So now they're making all their assumptions based on like very small minority of stuff. I think that's the thing that bothered me most and, and really put us in the form Toro kind of thing was we had low expectations. We thought multi-step, whatever, live data, maybe you'll get like 70% of people to give answers. 96% of people provide us full data and answer all our questions. That's crazy. They, people want to tell you. And it's so funny because in the early days, and when I do talk to customers, I always ask this one question. Every time I unsubscribe from an email list, everyone always asks me why I unsubscribe. They never ask me why I subscribe when I sign up. And that's weird. Wow, such good, this stuff seems so simple, but it's not simple, right? It is simple in the sense that customer psychology is actually simpler than we'd like to think it is in some respects. But I guess developing your empathy gene and developing that muscle, that empathy muscle in the business that isn't, I guess, necessarily immediately commercially motivated. And I think to me, that is probably the single biggest issue I see in e-commerce today is that marketers are actually salespeople. And I know the likes of Gary Vaynerchuk and others have talked about this, that digital marketers are not, they're, they're not actually doing marketing, they're doing digital sales. And so they're effectively do, doing digital promotion, digital advertising, but it's all about sales and it's all about sales within the next 24 hours. And so basically they, digital marketers, what I've seen is that unless they can convert based on an effort that they make as a marketer within 30 days of making that effort, then they consider the effort dead money, dead effort. And so we, as I guess people in the industry that aren't I, like, I don't consider myself a marketer, but I really try to understand the overlap between marketing and tech and customer psychology and all of the different touch points that customers have against the omni-channel journey. I really try to have empathy for people that are trying to navigate that journey as a customer. And it's almost like it's, it's a minefield 
of data gathering and weaponization of their data and their behavioral actions taken on a website <laughs> or taken in store, et cetera. And, it, and, it, and I guess customers feel that that brands and marketers have become almost combative in their desire to voraciously capture every single data point they can, but they don't make any effort to show the customer why or how that benefits them. And nine times out of 10, it's because it doesn't benefit. It's, oh, it's because it benefits the brand. This is quizzes, 100%. And I'm going to make some enemies here. I hate quizzes. I absolutely hate the idea behind a quiz. I, like, I don't mind stuff that helps guide you. But the fact that you have to put in your email address to get your results or whatever at the end is the biggest gimmick and bullshit I've ever seen. A quiz is a pre-intent action that someone's taking and part of product discovery. Give them yep. the answers, support them. If you want them, if you want to collect data and attach it to something later, there's other ways to do it. You could delay, put another nice little pop. Like we use multiple pop-ups on a website and people are like, oh, you're using so many pop-ups. I think you might've actually commented on that jokingly on one of my things. Yeah. But we put one on the homepage, let people know there's an offer. And we put one on the product page and we wait like 45 seconds to a minute. And if someone's on a product page for 45 seconds to a minute, they're given the good old look over. And if they're happy, then the offer is there for them just to make sure it's there. And we do it not to be like overly aggressive, even though the data is worth more than the discount that we give them long term. But we do it just so that we can let people know that we're there for them and that there's an offer for them. And there's nothing wrong with that because you're, you're building a website for your, your 90 percent of people that are first timers there. Anyone that knows the product and knows your website is never going to spend 45 seconds on a product page for the most part. They're going to go in there. They're going to know what they're going to want to look at. They're going to scroll through as quickly as possible, and they're going to be in and out. And they probably have already purchased from you, so they're not going to see that pop up anyway. So like, we need a design for that brand new first look at everything. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. I'm going to give you an example of, of a scenario where I think that data can be mutually beneficial in these experiences between a brand and a consumer. So I'm working with, with, with a company now that sells four-wheel drive parts, and we're looking at a complete rebuild of their e-commerce platform. We're actually gonna mm -hmm. migrate them onto a new e-commerce platform. We're, we're replatforming a whole bunch of tech. But one of, the, one of the things that we're bringing to the table is a RegioPlate lookup service. And we've mm -hmm. got to fetch data from a remote service so that when they do the RegioPlate lookup, we know the make model year of their vehicle so that we can do a, an automatic match between yeah. that vehicle's data and products that fit. So that way they don't have to think about it. They don't have to worry, does this does this brake pad fit my vehicle? And but the but the benefit of this is not only does it make it easier for the customer to really rapidly find stuff that works for them in their vehicle, but we allow we're going to allow them and we've engineered this in to for them to create a my garage, right? Because most customers they'll have more than one vehicle. They won't just have one. They have maybe two, maybe three vehicles in the household. And so they may want to store that that vehicle data and more than one vehicle's data in the database so that when they log in, they can filter, automatically apply a filter for the vehicle that they're shopping for as they traverse the website, we'll only show them products that fit their vehicle. Yeah. So that's an immediate benefit to the customer, but it also benefits the brand because every single call that is made to that remote service has an API cost, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're benefiting the customer by storing that data in the website mm -hmm. against their customer account that they can reuse at will when they enter the website. 
but it also benefits the brand in reduced API costs in, in, in remote services costs. And so this is a case of an absolute win-win. It, it dramatically reduces friction for the customer. It makes their life better and easier and faster. And particularly for people that are working in the trade and working on project vehicles, we're going to allow them to store their projects as if it was a wish list. They'll be able to store each project as a wish list so that they can add items to that wish list for that vehicle project that they're working on. And then once they're done, adding that all to their kind of wish list, they can check out with the whole lot for that one project at one time. Now, again, that gives us really important data around the vehicles that are the most common. That gives us a really accurate forecast of the yeah. types of products that we need to create better stock holding for. It gives us insight and intelligence into the community that we're servicing. So there's all sorts of benefits to the brand, but the, there's a super tangible benefit to the customer. And I think if we can, if we as e-commerce specialists can start thinking through that lens, hey, we want this specific outcome because it's commercially beneficial for us and maybe they'll buy more, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side, how can we resurface this data back to the customer? at the right time in a super meaningful way that matters to them. Yeah, you nailed it. This is, it just requires getting to know who your customers are and maybe approaching them not as dollars and cents. I don't know, it seems a little crazy. I'd love to see brands that provide more experience level stuff where it's built around, you said sales has turned into marketing and marketing is really customer support and customer support is really customer experience. That's like my cascading view on it. If you're in marketing, you're really in customer support. You got to predictively understand what questions a customer is going to have and do your very best to describe them in the most straightforward manner possible. God, B2B websites would really get a kick out of that. Maybe plain English would work instead of buzzwords once or twice that people would have to look up and try to understand what they're talking about. I think we've overcomplicated a lot of things and in an effort to stand out and be different, we've actually just made it more difficult for most people to make decisions. This came up in a conversation the other day. My, my rant about product pages the other day, that particular product did not list the materials of that product on the product page. If it's on a tag and I can't feel it or read it, I need it on the product page. Pretty simple stuff, isn't it? It's not rocket science. Not at all. And that's why I think when I go in and I'm consulting with brands, the first place I start, and, and it some, sometimes surprises them because we work across process design, org design, tech, data, yeah. people. We work across the whole ball of wax, so to speak. But where I often start to try to identify the gaps in the business is I say, show me your product data and show me your customer data. Show it to me. Show mm -hmm. me an example of it. Let's log into your ERP, wherever you store your, the, whether you've got a PIM or whether you only have product data on your website, show me a typical example of the type of product data that you've got in your system and how it's organized and whether you've got structured product data, unstructured product data, mm -hmm. both. How are you displaying it? How are you presenting it? Can customers filter by it? All these things. And they start to show me, show me what your product model is. Show me the parent-child relationship. Show me how you manage mm -hmm. variants. Show me how you interlink these. Show me how you show related products or, or is the, are you relying on some ad tech to, to create those product relationships? Show me your customer data. Show me what you collect. Show me where, at what point you collect it. Show me if you're a B2B business, show me your pricing model, your pricing tiers. Does everybody have their own unique price list? Why do we do these things? 
what what are the motivators inside the business because oftentimes they say oh we grew organically which is to say we had no plan we didn't do any of this with any intention <laughs> is all that means and when we start talking about data and i start explaining to them the importance of organizing this data in a better way not for them but for their customer experience and i'll tell yeah. them look we need to do two weeks or three weeks worth of work on your data before we can even start thinking about a, a rebuild or getting this into an e-commerce website because your data is not e-commerce ready. And they're oftentimes shocked and they get, it's like a light bulb goes on and they go, oh my God, you're so right. We didn't even think of that. And it's really hard when you're in the fishbowl, it's really hard to get the view from outside the fishbowl. <laughs> it's just the way that it is. And, and sometimes that third party view of someone coming in that's being paid to tell you where your baby's ugly that sometimes is the game changer for them. Yeah, I do this with UTMs. That's the first thing I ask for. I was like, can you just send me what your UTMs look like? Because most of the time, <laughs> there's no version controlling on them. There's no rhyme or reason to how they're structured. It's just random strings. And I'm like, you do realize that, number one, you're broadcasting this to all your competitors because you're telling them exactly what you're doing. But number two, there's no version controlling on this and no testing. If you can't version control and test and, and you know measure against each other in a very easy way, you're going to run into problems here. Uh, this came up too the other day. How many times have you been on a website and seen these collections that don't have anything in them? I think I was looking at a couple of stores the other day and there were something like an ungodly amount of collections, like over 50 collections and half of them didn't have anything in them. And I was like, why do they exist anymore? Like just clean up of data in order to streamline stuff in order to build. Uh, and I do think this one's interesting. I think collections are underutilized on Shopify mass and that there's room for cross collections now, especially with 2.0 coming out where you can easily drop some stuff in. God, it's the biggest opportunity that I see right now is better landing pages, leveraging customized collections for different people coming from different ads. Like you can make a killing right now doing that. And you've always been able to do that on, well, on any platform that allows you to have hidden categories, for example, mm -hmm. you've, you've always been able to do that, but most brands don't take the energy of the time to do that, to create custom categories with custom product assignments in those categories as landing pages for ads that make that landing page ultra relevant to that point in the journey. It's it's so possible and so easy to do. And yet this is what I'm saying. I think it seems easy to me, it seems easy to you, but the vast majority of people, and maybe we need to give them a little bit more credit. It's just, it's not a thought that comes across a lot of people. Juliana and others have, have told me this too, because I'm too much in my own bubble. Everything seems like it's an easy fix. Yeah, you should collect lots of data. Yeah, you should use that in your, your ad reporting and recommendations. You should also use data in order to figure out where the gaps are in your customer journey. And it's pretty easy. You just ask these questions and you can go to the product page and if they're there, if they're not there, then we look to add them in a sensical way. People don't think like that though. That, that amount of like logic driven thought that exists within different people within industry might exist to a certain extent, but everyone's firing from their old playbooks. And God knows, we know that if you search for something on Google and you're going to get the same answers pretty much all across the board. And most of them are abandoned cart and put, give a discount out on that third email and all that same stuff. I'd like to see people challenge like the e-commerce norms more. I'd like to see people get brave and have a landing page. That's just a flashing stop sign that says hi instead of trying to sell a product. Like, why not? There's no rules. Yet we pretend there's tons of rules that we all have to follow. I love it, mate. Look, I love your thinking. I love the way your brain works. I love the challenges, the gauntlet you throw down to all of us 
almost every day on LinkedIn through your amazing content. I'd love, I think we could, the next conversation we have, I'd love that to be a bit about the metaverse and where we stand oh, on that. And so many look, thoughts on that. <laughs> look, I think we could have a couple hour conversation on that. So let's save that for the next time. John, I super appreciate your time. I've loved our conversation. I'm really enjoying your content. I think you're really challenging the status quo. You've asked all of us and challenged us to, to challenge the status quo, and you're absolutely doing that, that you're walking, you're walking the talk. You're not just talking the talk. And I love that about you. You're one of the few that I, when I open up LinkedIn, that I actually look forward to your posts. I look forward to your content. You and Rick Watson and a couple of other, it's a small handful. It's less than 10. Let's put it that way. Of people, really when I open up LinkedIn, I actually genuinely enjoy your line of thinking and the insights that you bring to the table that are totally relevant and actionable. They're really actionable. And brands would do well to follow you and, and to take your advice because I think that you come at it from an angle that is so totally practical. This is not crazy stuff that you're talking about. This is not pie in the sky stuff. This is extremely practical thinking that you're bringing to the table and weaving that concept of consumer psychology in with just common sense. And I absolutely love that about you. So thank you for what you're doing for our industry. I really appreciate it personally. Thanks for the kind words. It's been a pleasure getting to chat with you finally and and, and go through all these things. And I, I you got to push forward, right? You got to work on questioning everything. And some time ago, we all stopped being kids and we stopped asking why. And now I'm the annoying kid that asks why to everyone about everything. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think we should all be questioning everything that we do. And we should be testing a lot more crazy stuff. I think we've could stopped not, testing crazy stuff. And I think we should be testing a lot of crazy stuff all the time. Could not agree more. Now we're at the final segment of the show where this is a brand new segment introduced at a few episodes ago where I turn the microphone over to you. I let you ask me one question, any question you like, and I do my best to answer it. And this has actually turned out to be a super popular segment. I've gotten some feedback that the people absolutely love it when when I, I have to go on the defensive, so to speak, and answer a question from you. So over to you. Johnny Vonko, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you're doing in the industry. Thank you for Form Toro. And over to you to ask me one question, any question you like. When do you think the bottom of e-commerce is going to fall out? I think it already has. And I just think most brands don't know it yet. I think from all the data I'm seeing, particularly out of the UK, which I think has some of the best e-commerce data in the world right now, we're, we're seeing that from the COVID peak, on average, across the board from an e-commerce perspective, about 25%, and as a percentage of penetration of retail. And so I, I think we're seeing that right now, and I think we're going to see that unfold, and that is going to be the shockwave that hits e-commerce over the next 6 to 12 months. And do I think that we will go back to lower than pre-pandemic levels? No, I don't. But do I think that we will return to the mean? For example, in New Zealand, yeah. we were growing at about 1% penetration a year in e-commerce. We're going to return to that mean. I, I, I think that if we take out the noise of COVID and we drew a straight line between uh, a trend line between where we were pre-COVID and, and now, I think that trajectory that we were on, taking out the noise of COVID, is, it will go back to cl much closer to that mean. We won't we'll lose a, all the gains of COVID, but we'll be much closer. Here's the follow-up to that. Rising ad prices aren't going away. What do you think they're going to contribute to that mean and the consistent growth within e-com? I think the brands that haven't had empathy before for their customers in ways that we've been talking about and have been reliant for the life of their business in many cases mm -hmm. on cheap and easy acquisition through the likes of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, 
I think that those brands are dead men and women walking and they don't mm -hmm. even know it. Completely agree. John, it has been absolutely my pleasure hanging out with you. I've gotten so much out of this. We could have another two hours talking together. I won't put the audience through that right now, but look, I'd love to have you back on the pod again, maybe in another few months, six months, whatever. And I'd love to jump into the metaverse and some of the other things, some of the other topics that are a little bit, little bit off angle from direct e-commerce. And I'd love to get your take on so many other things. So let's do yeah, it Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it for sure. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Are you a merchant or software vendor that is focused on e-commerce or omni-channel? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to see how we can help you scale your business.